HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the executive director of Heritage Radio Network. We are super excited to be kicking off our live broadcast today from Slow Food Nations in Denver, Colorado, where it is a warm but dry 87-ish. And uh, we're in a beautiful tent in Larimer Square. If you're in Denver, I hope you'll come by and visit us today. We've got a great outdoor seating area for you to come take a chill, listen to our interviews today. I want to start by saying a big thank you to Slow Food for having us. And a huge thanks to Big Green Egg and the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts for making our program possible today. My very special guest this morning, our first guest, is Paul Willis. He's the founder of the Nyman Ranch Pork Company and a member of the Heritage Radio Network Hall of Fame. Welcome, Paul. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. We're so glad to have you. How's your weekend been going so far? We've been at Slow Food Nations for a couple days now. We had the Leader Summit yesterday. Well, it's been a lot of fun. I met a lot of interesting people, and you know, everybody's got a story and uh, something really of uh, um, of value. And so, lots of conversations, and uh, uh, and uh, so it's been it's been terrific. What's on your docket today after this? Uh, well, besides this, I mean, I had an interview earlier. I'm going to be on a panel yet today, and then. Um, I'm going to be on with Alice Waters later this evening, and we also have a, a fundraising dinner uh, at uh, Pete and Barbara Marzik's house, and the fundraiser is for our Nyman Ranch uh, Scholarship Fund, which is, uh, is, is really for the um, young people that are raised uh, on the farms of our Nyman Ranch uh, farmers, both the hog farms, beef, and lamb. So. Uh, uh, yeah, I've got a busy schedule. That sounds excellent. Well, we're going to come back and talk more about the scholarship in a little while. Um, I also just got like hit with a wafting smell of bacon, which is really putting me in the spirit to talk to you about hog farming today. Um, but I would love to talk a little bit about how you got started um, as a farmer. And um, you're from Thornton, Iowa, right? Um, right. Right. And uh, you have a long history of sort of breaking away from industrial hog farming. So uh, tell us about how you got your beginning and um, the sort of initial transitions that you started to make in hog ranching. Okay. 
I, uh, I grew up on, on uh, a farm, Thornton, Iowa, and I, uh, you know, when I, when I left high school, I never imagined that I would actually even return to the farm. And, uh, you know, I went to college, I uh, was in the Peace Corps, came back, worked a couple of years. Where did you go in the Peace Corps? I was in Nigeria, nor- northeast part of Nigeria. You know where Boko Haram has uh, been operating? That's mm-hmm. where I was. Mm-hmm. What were you doing there? I, I, I Believe it or not, I was the Young Farmers Club organizer wow. for, for the Northeast State. Wow. So we had, uh, we had some village-level clubs. Uh, we had some that were in schools, both you know primary schools, secondary schools. Um, the, and, uh, uh, you know, I opened a lot of clubs, and they would have an agri- agricultural project of some sort. And they'd decide what it was, and then we would, uh, you know, follow the project, try to maintain the whatever the recommended practices were, and then, you know, and it was very interesting because we had uh, a lot of different tribal groups. Some people were uh, Muslim, some people were Christian, some people were pagan. You know, mm-hmm. uh, everybody had a little bit, bit different take about you know how they wanted to have their club. And some clubs actually, everybody was an officer. Did that experience start to change your mind about farming in any ways that surprised you at the time? Um, yes, I really think I, I really learned to, to, to appreciate uh, ways of farming that were, uh, you know, different than what I had grown up with, which was, uh, you know, typically, uh, well, in those days, it was, most of the farms were kind of diversified, corn, soybeans, livestock. Um, uh, you know, so well, anyway, it it it, uh, it it just taught me to, I guess, understand uh, understand that people had different ways of doing things in different places, and and uh, yeah, you know, you didn't want to uh, superimpose your values on somebody else of a different uh, culture, you might say, or practices. Mm-hmm. You'd be careful about that. Yeah. So, what happened when you came back from Nigeria? Well. I, uh, I was involved in the uh, Peace Corps recruiting for a while. I was a VISTA program officer for the state of Minnesota. And uh, then it came up that my uh, family needed some help on the farm. And I went down to Iowa from Minnesota. I was living in Minneapolis. And I went back to Iowa and, uh, uh, you know, helped with the uh, harvest. And then my father broke his... His, his arm and he couldn't put in the crop. I ended up planting the crop in the spring and uh, I had a call one day from a neighbor that said uh, he had a sow with five pigs and if I, if I bought this sow, he'd just give me the pigs. Wow. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. Six and, for the price of one. <laughs> six for the price <laughs> of one. And, uh, and uh, when I grew up, we had raised pigs, pasture pigs in those days, so I had that... I, you know, I knew that I knew this. I had the skill. I knew how to do it, and uh, you know, I decided, well, this is pretty good. And I bought another seven uh, females, and I borrowed a boar from the neighbor, and I was in the pig business. Just like that. Just like that, and and uh, the first, uh, you know, five, five years, and I said, well, if I'm going to be here, I, I'm going to, you know get into this farming business uh, uh, seriously and and uh, you know I have to be more of a partner on the farming operation uh, but the pig but the pig side of the business that was strictly just 
my uh, uh, thing. Sort of started as a pet project? and Right, and uh, so in the beginning stages, it was, it, was, it was difficult because I was trying to build up my herd, saving a lot of breeding stock back, you know, and to get, get a, a little size to it. So that means you don't have anything to sell. Mm-hmm. What you, normally you'd be selling as a market pig, you were saving as breeding stock. So eventually they would reach, you know, they'd go to market, but it was a cash flow problem. Uh, uh, you know, so that was a struggle. And I, uh, you know, I, I remember that experience and we can relate that now because it has something to do with uh, helping out some of our people getting into becoming Nyman Ranch uh, hog farmers mm-hmm. today. But so anyway, you, you started with just for context. You started with a one sow and five baby pigs, and right. then quickly that grew to twelve. How many hogs right now is Nyman Ranch raising at a time? Well, just myself. Uh, within about five years, I was raising around three thousand head a year. Wow! So uh, this was a fairly large this got out of operation. Hand <laughs> yeah, maybe it was a little longer than that, but I continued to to uh, grow and I was I was making money it was profitable I was getting ahead in the farming world and uh, uh, about this time the, uh, uh, the the push for industrially raised pigs started moving into Iowa it had been uh, prominent in North Carolina and they were coming telling us we had to get bigger get out we should put up one of these large confinement buildings and you couldn't make a living unless you had you know thousands of uh, sows and things like this and I is went, this the point where contract farming is becoming a big part of the industry or is that separate um, from the sort of industrialization it, yeah all of the all of those things were kind of uh, advancing at the same time you know and so there were all types of different operations, and some people were abandoning their outdoor kind of raising pigs, uh, and uh, some farmers put up these buildings. First they were smaller, then they got bigger, uh, but but for the most part, uh, most of the uh, these industrial buildings were put up by uh, by larger companies, mm-hmm. and then they would hire, uh, maybe make some kind of a deal for the manure disposal, things like that. All kinds of different scenarios, but but, they, but it was advancing very rapidly, and I was actually being starting to being squeezed out of the marketplace, and I didn't like that. Um, I was in California visiting my sister. I saw a woman buy a organic chicken and pay maybe double or triple, and I, I said, "Well, why are you? Why do you? You know, why are you buying this?" Uh, organic free-range chicken oh she said it tastes better it's worth it I'm thinking well why don't we have free-range pigs you know Uh, that was a thought you know kind of the thought process and uh, about this time microbreweries were sort of coming onto the scene you know the and uh, you know specialty brands Mm -hmm. for things and I was thought well you know we should have a specialty brand give a sense of what what year this thought processes this was in the um, I'd say probably in the late 80s or early 90s so I started looking for uh, a way to uh, sell 
my pasture raised uh, pigs, but I, you know, and there were people that wanted to buy, you know, pork chop or part or something, and I, I wasn't raising pork chops, I'm raising, I'm raising animals, you know, you, you sell the entire animal. And, and uh, it goes back to my Peace Corps experience, one of my colleagues, uh, Jeannie McCormick had been in my training group and I found out she had moved back to the ranch in Rio Vista, California and and I went out to see her and her husband and they were raising lamb and they're telling me about this guy that was helping market their lamb. That was Bill Nyman. Ah. And I said, well, I have to meet him. We went to the burger joint in San Francisco the next day and, and uh, we were excited and he was the first person that understood that I'm, you know, you're, you're raising livestock, you have to, you know, find a, find a place for all of the livestock, all of the parts. And um, he said, well, send me some pork. And we sent it, uh, I went home, just took it out of the freezer, shipped it to San Francisco, and they sent it out to some of the restaurants, um, including Chez Panisse, and Alice Waters is here right today. I'm gonna be on a panel with her later. But, uh, but she was instrumental in the, I mean, they, they loved the, the, the quality from an eating standpoint. And, and uh, Bill said, uh, well, send me 30 pigs. Mm -hmm. And I, I have no idea, how, how does this process work? And uh, I went and I found a packing plant that would do custom work. And they filled me in on how this all, you know, the logistics happens. How does a live animal get from your farm and end up and Bill said, by the way, it has to be there 5.30 Monday morning. Great. No problem. No problem. We got you, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it. That actually happened in 95. Was it hard to find a processor at that time? Is that becoming easier or harder for your farmers? Well, I mean, now you have we, economies we of scale. But for, for somebody who is a small pork producer to it's find a, nation, a way to get that processed. It's a nationwide problem. Ex with the exception of some of the areas like the Midwest, we had, um, you know, you have some large processing plants, uh, packing plants. Uh, I was fortunate in Iowa, we had a, a, what we call a medium-sized plant uh, that processed a couple thousand animals day a day. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's compared to a large plant that processes 36,000 a day. But much different than a, a locker plant that, you know, handles maybe five head or something, and and it's it's costly. Mm -hmm. So uh, I found this plant. Uh, the first place I went, and uh, they were helpful. They helped me figure it out because I had no idea how this works. Okay. You know, the trucking and how do, how does it. You know, how, what, what do you do? Cut it? You know, is it a hanging carcass or is it a... Um, anyway, we did this, but, but, but the problem with, with processing is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a problem for small producers. Mm -hmm. And it's expensive when you mm -hmm. find it. So it sounds like for so many food startups, sort of getting initial buy-in from chefs and from people who are really influential in the space can be really critical um, to getting kind of that early success. Fast forward, Nyman Ranch is a household name and uh, we can find your products in almost every grocery store that, that I walk into at least. 
Um, how now is Nyman sort of setting itself apart from industrial agriculture? How, how would you define sort of the difference between industrial hog farming and the sustainable hog farming of Nyman Ranch? Well, right from the beginning, I wanted to uh, differentiate what we were doing from, uh, from commodity production. And uh, a big cornerstone of it is the animal welfare uh, aspect. We're raising animals that uh, uh, they're either on pasture or deep bedding. Uh, and we, right from the beginning, I started working with Diane Halverson. At that time, was with the Animal Welfare Institute. But I wanted that. I wanted that uh, uh, sort of stamp of approval. And and we have that yet today. Uh, you know, we don't allow gestation stalls. We don't allow farrowing crates. We the animals have to have bedding. We've we further advanced things like no antibiotics ever, vegetarian diet, and. And, and they have to be owned and raised by, the, by independent farmers. Mm -hmm. So there's a big, it's a big difference. And the end product is, is dramatically different also. The end product is dramatically different and so many people, especially like the people who are here today at Slow Food Nations, people who understand sort of the values of purchasing and procurement that mm. is not going through the industrial meat system um, are keenly aware of, there is always going to be a cost premium. Um, what are you thinking about in terms of making good meat accessible? Well, even though we're a meat company, we advocate maybe eating less meat mm -hmm. and eating better meat, you know, some uh, meat that has has. Uh, that tastes great, but also has other uh, uh, values and, and uh, supports farmers. It's good for the, it's, it's better for the animals, better for the farmers, better for the environment, ultimately better for the customer, all those things. And, and um, we, you know, we have some customers that are like universities and we've done a, come a long ways to have, uh, uh, you know, maybe a meat be be an ingredient, not, not necessarily a center of the plate. Mm -hmm. Not that you can't have that sometimes, but, but there's ways of, uh, I think yesterday we had some beef adobo or something mm -hmm. on some kind of like a lettuce wrap or mm -hmm. something. And it was just maybe uh, an ounce or two. Um, and it was flavorful and delicious. Yeah. So there's ways of stretching your, you know, but, but we're raising a special product, and we, we, I guess the other thing I have to say is that we, right from the beginning, I wanted to make sure that our farmers were, were paid a fair and equitable price. Uh, uh, Bill Nyman asked me when I first met, what do you want for your pigs? And I came up with a price, which was a, a really good price, but not, not unreasonable. And it was the first time, honestly, anybody had ever asked me what I wanted for an animal that I was raising, and, and I could put a value on my, you know, labor and and, and uh, you know all the cost of production. Mm -hmm. At this point, how um, how rare is it for a farmer to be able to set their own price? I think if you're I think if you're raising something special, I don't think it's rare. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, that's a difference between commodity. Um, Food production, whether it's whether it's uh, grain or vegetables or you know uh, 
or, or livestock. You, you know, if you, if you have something special, you, that, that gives you that privilege, I guess you might say. Mm-hmm. And our, our, what we pay our farmers covers all of their costs of production and gives them a profit. And if the commodity market would go up, we continue to raise our, our price because we're always paying better. And, uh, and if it goes down, we don't go down with the... Uh, and so because of the tariffs and things like that, mm-hmm. I mean, the past year, our, our premium to our farmers has been almost 100%. Wow. It's very, it's very attractive for people in our program at this point. So since you mentioned tariffs, you're in Iowa pretty exciting times right now uh, <laughs> you guys uh, you said earlier we were chatting you said you've been um, getting a lot of traffic from a lot of political candidates right now who's talking about food policy and um, how important is that as a campaign issue in Iowa well you can't come to Iowa and not talk about uh, I would call it maybe agricultural policy and, and they're not talking about food quite so much as, you know, we have things like uh, ethanol production there and, uh, you know, right or wrong, it's still uh, uh, popular within the state. And uh, almost every candidate uh, uh, that I, I've met, about 10 different candidates, and, and uh, most people are pretty well versed. They, uh, I mean, not everybody, but... Um, uh, a lot of people, you can tell they've done some homework, and they know they need to, you know, they don't need to be coming there and looking really foolish. Yeah. H- have issues like the pork tariffs swayed mass public opinion? Well, that's an interesting question because I would think that every farmer would, because of that, uh, not support that that side of the, you know. Uh, however, that's not necessarily the case. They're like, oh, you know, it's going to be better in the long run. It amazes me, to be honest. Mm-hmm. As we're thinking about agriculture policy and um, kind of what we see and hear in the news, particularly around pork farming, there are a lot of externalities, particularly with industrial agriculture, but really with any agriculture, mm-hmm. um, as far as impact on the environment and impact on people and even further downstream impacts on health of people who consume these products. And, you know, currently very few of these externalities wind up being paid for by the producers. And, uh, you know, we hear about overflowing waste lagoons, destroying local watersheds, and, um, you know, a lot of really horrific things that are going on um, that that nobody is really uh, paying for on the production side of things. Um, obviously, that's going to be a lot different on a different scale of agriculture and with different practices where animals are outside on grass. They're not being held in pens and waste isn't accumulating in the same way. But uh, how do you approach holding producers responsible for the cost of the externalities that they produce? Okay, so animals produce manure, mm-hmm. but... Our animals that are, if they're out on pasture or they're uh, they're in a bedded situation where the uh, the manure is mixed in with the uh, bedding and it, it you know it's usually put in put out in a big compost pile and it's spread and it doesn't it doesn't get into the water system easily because it's tied up in the organic material. The confinement operations have liquid 
uh, manure below the buildings. We don't have the lagoons like they do in North Carolina, but um, you know, so there's a there's a rush between you know in the fall after the crops are out before the ground freezes, or in the spring before you plant to empty these pits and it's injected into the ground um, and uh, often over applied. And there was a study recently in one of the counties in the northwest part of the state and they measured the amount of effluent coming out of the, uh, of, of the hog facilities and the amount of commercial purchased fertilizer and compared it to the land base and they found that the application was double of what the land base would would uh, would allow, mm -hmm. so you're. <laughs> I mean, it just seems uh, actually just a, like an enormous waste of money, if nothing else. So you you know you have this double application of nitrogen and phosphate and everything. So when it rains, we have a. Do you know what drainage tile are? No. Well, the upper Midwest water. Uh, our problem was we have too much water, and uh, a lot of the land is glaciated, and there's a lot of potholes or there depressions where they're they're little uh, wetlands or marshes or um, so. When the Europeans came, they knew how to drain this, and the, the original tile maybe a four to six inch diameter, uh, about 18 inches long, was was dug into the ground, put in about three foot deep, laid to grade, mm. and then the little cracks between each tile, the water would percolate in, and, and that's how the land was draped. Now, they put in plastic tile, and you can put it in with a great big uh, uh, plow, and, and there's millions of miles of drainage tile. Wow. And so when it rains, if you've got excess nutrients, it gets into the tile, and it's like a tree branch system. The bigger ones, the small ones run into bigger ones. Eventually they open, uh, run into an open uh, either drainage ditch or a river. Mm -hmm. And it goes down to Mississippi and creates a dead zone. I had no idea there was so much plastic being laid underground. That's a Yeah, it comes in big, fascinating, uh, huge, huge uh, coils. Wow. So what do we do about that? We can try to regulate you know confinement producers we can send them a bill for all the rivers they killed we can try to convince people to only buy Nyman Ranch pork what do we do well I would like to think that we'd have the political will uh, uh, the country of Denmark had had a, a similar uh, problem in the, in the entire country a few years ago uh, but they're a smaller country, and the, the country in general decided, you know, enough is enough. We want to clean up our water. And within uh, something like five years, they did. They cleaned up all their water and, uh, uh, you know, the, all of the streams. You could fish in them. They hadn't for a whole generation. So there's that, but it's hard to do. Uh, you have a lot of agribusiness, uh, buying your politics and things like that and controlling the, the legislature to... Uh, no, so let me give you an example. Um, we, we're encouraging co uh, cover crops, mm -hmm. and cover crops are helpful in cleaning up the water, and they prevent erosion, and uh, you know they have all kinds of benefits. Uh, but it's a volunteer, voluntary program, 
So the Iowa Envi Environmental Council uh, uh, just last week or two did a kind of a check to see where we were and, and the amount of acres that are in cover crops and how long would it take. And at the present rate in the volunteer cover crops rate, it will take 90 years to, to get this accomplished. So I think you have to put, uh, uh, you, have to, you, have to, you have to pass some laws to make it required. You know, but but that's not easy to do. Sure. So whether it's a state or a national thing, but anyway, we it, it frustrates me. Yeah, we can't to keep say sitting the least. on it. Yeah. <laughs> but we we at Nyman Ranch at least we're doing uh, what we think is we're doing our part the the best we can, and it's a big improvement over commodity agriculture in general. Yeah. But it's just you know it's still a even though we have over 750 farmers and ranchers now, um, you know, in the in the big picture, that's still a small number. Hmm. Let's talk more about who the farmers are, and you guys are doing some really cool work uh, to help younger farmers get into business. I think we've all heard some really frightening statistics about the average age of the farmer in the U.S. Uh, farmers are aging out of the profession and young farmers have a really hard time getting started. They have a hard time getting access to land. It's really difficult to become financially sustainable. How are you guys looking to solve that problem? Okay, so I told you about how it was hard to get started with, you know, because I was trying to build up the breeding stock and we actually um, gave away breeding stock to, to young farmers last year uh, to the tune of $300,000. And, you know, uh, people could apply and they had to be new farmers or young farmers and they might get 10 gilts, which are the young sows. Um, and uh, there are no strings attached. Um, and that's a big help uh, just, you know, getting going. What would have been the market price for those 10 pigs? Um, I'd say around $250 a head. Mm -hmm. So that's a big jump. So it's it, you know a one one of the farmers that started he had he got forty head. Wow. You know mm -hmm. that's equivalent about ten thousand dollars or mm -hmm. so. But yeah, you know, and it, it doesn't go unnoticed because not everybody gets it. But uh, uh, you know, so we're we that's one of the things we we might go to a bank or something like this if they need um, the banker doesn't understand our type of agriculture. Uh, you know, help help people with financing. Um, so you're helping we, independent farmers get access to credit, or are they part of the Nyman Ranch network at that point? How does, they, how does that work? They would be, they could be uh, uh, part of the network by by new, but I mean new Nyman new to the Nyman Ranch network, perhaps. Oh. Uh, but you know, not many people have an, uh, you know, pull out their wallet and pay a feed bill. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you you. You don't have to have very many pigs, and you start having thousands of dollars. Uh, and, you know, every time that you grind a load of feed, it's you know six ton of feed at three hundred dollars a ton or something. It adds up. And for something like hog farming, you don't have income right away. So this kind of access to capital issue, I, I would think, would be a really big barrier for a lot of people starting off. Um, yeah, 
And another thing is we provide uh, funding interest-free loans to farmers that want to buy breeding stock, mm -hmm. buy breeding stock. So, in, you know, in that respect, if you buy breeding stock, that, that's an asset, and if you keep that, that sow for a couple of years and then sell the sow, uh, you have enough to pay all that money back. Wow. How long is a sow in production? Well, on my farm, for example, we would have, uh, uh, they, they, they can have uh, about two litters of pigs per year. And if they did well, um, I mean, I was always saving some breeding stock to replace. If they didn't do well, they probably went to market. Mm -hmm. But if they did well, I might keep them, um, you know, two, three, four years. Okay. You know, um, but, you know, you are in business and if they're not productive or in some cases, they might not get bred at all, mm -hmm. and you don't know why. They, they might have one litter of pigs, but that's it. Yeah. So, um, just briefly, because we are we are Heritage Radio Network, um, we have a lot of particular affinity for heritage breeds. What are um, your practices as far as like what breeds of pigs are you using well, we, for Nyman Ranch? We uh, most of our pigs are crossbred pigs. And uh, the, uh, a good starting point is a Chester White, Duroc, uh, Berkshire, three-way cross. And each one of those breeds brings something to the, you know, the, the, the Chester White will have more pigs, but the meat quality is pretty good. Duroc will grow a little faster, the Berkshire, you know. But that, you get uh, uh, heterosis, which is... Uh, that the, the offspring will be better than both of the parents. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, so uh, it's, we're not generally raising like Mangalista or something like that, um, but we're, we're using these breeds. And, uh, you know, it depends on what your, your definition of heritage is, mm -hmm. you know, but. What do these pigs have in common with industrial, industrially farmed pigs? Well, they will interbreed. Okay. <laughs> but they're technically the same species. They're the same species, but, um, but, but the type of pig that, uh, the, that we raise outdoors, they have more intermuscular fat. They carry more body fat. They, get, uh, they have bigger uh, 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 body cavities where their lungs and internal organs are because of the exercise they get. Mm -hmm. um, they... they uh, our pigs thrive outdoors. They can handle heat. They can handle cold weather. The industrial, other white meat, lean pig, uh, they they can hardly survive in an outdoor situation, mm -hmm. just because they don't have enough body cover and they, you know, they easily get stressed or sick. And our our pigs tend to be more calm. Yeah. So they're happier. They're happy. Definitely happier. Happier. Yeah. Um, I do want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the scholarship program. We're almost out of time, but you mentioned at the top of the show that you guys have a fundraiser coming up this weekend. Um, so do you still, first of all, do you still have tickets for the fundraiser available? Can anyone listening still attend? Uh, no tickets for tonight's event. We're sold out, which is Congratulations. great. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. And uh, it'll be at Pete and Barbara Marzik's house, and they're... Marzik Markets here in uh, Denver. They have two stores. They're, they carry all Nyman products, and they're uh, they were wonderful partners. 
and they've decided this is what we're doing and these scholarships go to the kids of our farmers and uh, you've heard a lot about you know people getting out of school with uh, huge debt and things like this I know a little something about that you're right so we have uh, in fact uh, Jacqueline Knudsen is a former uh, recipient she's in around here somewhere and uh, she graduated and announced yesterday uh, on a panel that I was on, she graduated debt-free. Wow, that's not awesome. that she didn't have, work hard too, you know. Sure. But we we definitely uh, helped her, and uh, you know we encourage people that are going to back to the uh, farm or the rural communities. Um, and last year we, uh, uh, and, and this is through the partnership of many of our customers, and uh, you know different sources of. of in these little fundraising things, and some chefs have put on dinners, and and uh, we raised uh, something like one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. Wow! It's it's really That's and it, awesome. it started the first time we did this, we were giving people a, a scholarship of a hundred dollars or something. Mm-hmm. So it's all grown from there. And it's it's grown from there, and uh, it's it's really uh, appreciated by the families and. Uh, um, I mean, despite the fact that, you know, our farmers are, are in business, it's still hard go. It's hard work, and nobody's get you know, it's, it's if, you, if you're looking for the millionaire train, um, uh, you know. Hog farming isn't that? <laughs> no, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> maybe it is. Could be. Maybe one day. Yeah. We got to get our policy started out first. Right. But. We're on our way. Well, I wish you guys a very successful fundraiser. Paul, I want to say thank you again for joining us on Heritage Radio Network. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you very much. And I love Heritage Radio, and you're doing some great work. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I want to say a huge thank you again to our sponsors for this weekend, Big Green Egg and the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. You can listen live all weekend at heritageradionetwork.org slash live. We'll also be publishing these interviews as podcasts under Heritage Radio Network on tour, on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back shortly after a quick break.